You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 142 of the National Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. In this episode we are going to cover a lot of different topics. Some which are my own personal favorites like psychedelics, religion, Sufism and much more. And we are doing this with Dr. James Fadiman, who is a psychologist, teacher and an author. And he's also very acknowledged for his extensive work in the field of psychedelic research. And the major theme of this episode will be talking about his studies in regards to microdosing psychedelics. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, I'm interested in that your interests are quite wide and also philosophical. And for the listeners who don't know who you are, could you explain a bit? Yeah, my name is James Fadiman, and um, I live in California. And I have been involved in psychedelic research for over 40 years. And I am currently working in a new area, um, which is called microdosing, which is taking very, very tiny amounts of psychedelics, which do not have any of the, the theatrical and upsetting and interesting effects that most people think when they hear the word psychedelic. So it's a new area, and it has many implications. So when you say microdosing psychedelics, does that only work with specific psychedelics or, or any? Well, that's why I do use the word psychedelics. We have reports from um, 1,800 people, and they have used um, LSD, uh, psilocybin mushrooms of many different species, um, a substance called 1P-LSD, which is a synthetic, uh, we also have people who've actually taken, and this will be obscure to some people, ayahuasca, which comes from the Amazon, and uh, ibogaine, which is a root from Africa. So we have a wide range, and the general effects seem to be fairly similar. So when we talk about psychedelics, we're really talking about a group of substances, uh, all of which seem to be... Um, beneficial for most people who've tried. And what uh, are the effects very different from depending on which one you use when you microdose? No, that's the thing that uh, that is curious is at least for LSD, all the mushrooms, um, mescaline which comes from a from different cactus in uh, in the Mexico and in Peru at least for those substances and some of the uh, ones made by chemists, uh, they all seem to have approximately the same effect at this very low dose. And what is the effect? Well, the general effect is people feel that their, their whole system is functioning better. 
And the best way to explain it is that sometimes at the end of the day, you think, whoo, this was a really good day. I got up a little early. I ate well. Um, I was good with some people at work, including one that I don't like that much. Um, I paid attention in the meeting and was creative. Um, I enjoyed my evening. It was just a good day. And we all have had good days. Well, microdosing seems to make it much more likely that you will have a good day. Now, that's for people in generally good health. The other general effect for people who have mental um, issues, particularly depression, they simply feel better uh, as well as if they were on a medication that was working. And there's no visual effects or anything like that? Um, well, we haven't, we haven't found... There's very few what are called side effects. And there are a few groups of people who shouldn't microdose. And those are people who's, who have a symptom of anxiety. Now, people who are both depressed and anxious, which is very common, they do very well. But for people who are simply anxious, it's not, it's not a good idea. And how come, because it doesn't, you know, my experience from using psychedelics is that it takes away any anxious thinking because it's like, you know, don't worry, be happy. So why doesn't it well, work with um, anxious? Well, a high dose of psychedelics takes away a lot of your concerns because you are less concerned with your whole personality. Um, that if you're much more aligned with being part of the nature and being part of um, humanity or the planet, then your individual problems of uh, are you getting along with your girlfriend get very small. With a microdose, it's really quite different because you are very much functioning, you're working, you're um, interacting, you're socializing, you're doing exercise, you're doing everything that you normally do, and it turns out that you're more aware. So people who are anxious, and we're not sure here, they either become more anxious, or we think they simply become more aware of their anxiety, and that's uncomfortable. So it hasn't worked well for them, and we, we suggest people not do that. So maybe for those people, they should, they should macrodose. <laughs> well, for those people, we figured they will probably work on whatever works best for them. And, and um, I never recommend a, micro, a large dose to anyone that I don't know very well personally. So, isn't it difficult to to microdose? I mean, if you whatever you get hold of, how to figure out what is so it doesn't become too much. Well, let's let's be. Uh, since some of your audience will have used psychedelics and probably LSD, they will have probably had what's called a tab, or a little tiny, tiny piece of paper, um, which has on it 100 micrograms. That's a hundred millionths of a gram. Um, a microdose is 10 millionths of a gram, or one-tenth of that dose. So there have been people who say, well, I can cut that little tiny, tiny piece of paper um, into imperfectly in into 10 pieces. But that's very, very hard to do. But it's very easy to put it in distilled water, say 10, um, 10 um, milliliters, 
and then simply to notice that one milliliter would then have 10 micrograms. So it's simply a, a question of simple measurement to be, to be safe. And what people have learned is that when they feel a little bit what we would call high, that's too much of a dose. So while we generally say for most people 10 micrograms is, a, is, is good, uh, many people have said, no, that's actually too much. I'll take eight, I'll take five. And we're running actually a small study now, about eight people who are using one microgram. That's one millionth of a gram. And they are reporting also some positive effects. But, but what would the argument be if you instead, you know, if you work with a large do dose and you work out your issues and after that, you are fine without even microdosing. Why is well, that? Well, the, the, basically, microdosing is not necessarily for therapy or for insights or for breakthroughs or for seeing that one is aligned with the divine. Microdosing simply makes your 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 day work better. Um, just as, and people have said, well, it's it seems to make my meditation go better. Other people say, my physical sport, I'm better at it. Um, I just talked to a professional, world-class martial artist, and he said, I know when I've microdosed, both when I'm in competition or when I'm just practicing, and I'm just a little better. So this is really a different class. It, it, isn't, a, 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 it isn't a small psychedelic trip. It is actually something different. And your studies, do they have like an end end goal, like to maybe make it so it can be just like a supplement or a vitamin pill that anybody could use? Well, what we're doing is exploring the possibilities of what is good for people. We only ask people to take it for a month and then to determine for themselves if they want to do it after that, and some of our people go on taking it, some people take it now and then when there's a special occasion. Um, I just got a letter this morning from a young man who had used microdosing to stop smoking. And he was very determined that he would make use of it to stop smoking, and he did after about mm, two weeks. And it's now been three years and he has not smoked and he doesn't have any interest in smoking and so it's not an issue. He doesn't re recall it, you know, and fondly and wish he could, nothing like that. It's just gone. And he is not microdosing. He's just continuing to lead his regular life. So we're still learning. Some people make use of it. Some people stop. Um, pretty much like most other things in the culture. The only thing similar that I can think of that is microdosing that I've done is that I have a a pipe I had used for DMT, smoking DMT, and mm -hmm. I uh, all I do is uh, once a day I just smell it. I don't use it because the sure. smell uh, brings me back to those experiences, and that's all <laughs> I need. <laughs> Well, I must say, I think that's the best way I've ever heard of using DMT. <laughs> yeah, which is our, our mind and our memories are very good. 
and we can put ourselves back in reflection or recollection of, of a healthy state or an odd or a, a high state. And that's part of the, the nice thing about consciousness. Do you have approval to do these studies or because some of the substances are not legal, I guess, in America? These substances are still illegal in most countries. Um, and our research is ask is what is called field research, in which you ask people to tell you their experiences wherever they are and however they obtain the materials. And we, we have people who have grown their own mushrooms, and we have chemists, and we have people who have bought material off the dark web, and we have people who've said, gee, I've had this in my refrigerator for 20 years. So all kinds, and they, um, they write us for what is the safest and most effective way to use it, and we recommend people take it um, what we call one day on, meaning to dose on one day, and then to have two days without taking anything, and then another dose. So we know that's safe, we know that's effective, and it allows them to observe themselves and tell us what they observe. So that is our research. It's different than a laboratory, it's different than a university, but it allows us to get much more information about many more conditions and many more people. So um, we have reports from 59 countries. And if, so, an, if anybody is listening that is microdosing or, or thinking about doing it, how can they report to you? Well, they can actually uh, write to, to me at jfadiman.com j-f-a-d-i-m-a-n at gmail.com a report or they can go to uh, this is a website microdosing psychedelics that's one word microdosing psychedelics and it's the plural psychedelics dot com and there's information there both um, basic questions about use and safety and then a remark that says, our, our major study is closed, but we would love to have your report. So we're still collecting um, reports from around the world. And your own journey, how, how did it all start for you, your interest in this topic and how it eventually led to the microdosing concept? In around 2010, I met with a friend named Robert Fort, F-O-R-T-E, who was a friend of Albert Hoffman, who was the, uh, the man who synthesized LSD. And he said that this, this area of very, very low doses, microdoses, had not been researched at all, and he was sorry about that. And that Albert had microdosed, of course, during his life, and my friend got me curious, and when I'm curious, I tend to ask people what they know and how they've experienced it, and so that's how the research started. Did you have any previous experience with psychedelics before this? Well, when I introduced myself and said I had 40 years of research, 
I think that would imply that I was, I was not interested because I'm an academic. And I had psychedelics that I started when I was given psilocybin by Richard Alpert, who became Ramdas. And I was living in Paris. And he was passing through on the way to an international conference. And he said, the greatest thing in the world has happened to me. And I want to share it with you. So that was my introduction. And how was it in those days? Because it was so unknown. Uh... Well, it was, it was unknown. It was legal. And we were careful. So that this was the discovery of these substances. And by the time I had taken it, this was 1961, the book by Aldous Huxley, um, where he described his own first psychedelic experience in great and, and beautiful detail, was out. So it was not as unknown as, as I thought, because uh, the next year I went to graduate school And I wrote to the company, Sandoz Pharmaceuticals, and said, I'm doing research. Uh, is there any literature? And they sent me two large volumes. And these were not the full reports. These were only the abstracts of the first thousand studies. So it was a very, uh, it was the most the most researched psychiatric drug in the world up to the time that the United States made it illegal and pressured other nations to do the same. Because if these experiences was in the early 60s, I mean, it was, you could say that it wasn't until the end of the 60s that it became more like mainstream when the hippie movement started and all that. Right. It was in the yeah the middle to late sixties. It became popular. Um, one just one of the underground chemists um, was was asked in an interview about how much LSD he'd made, and he thought for a moment and he said maybe two hundred and fifty million doses. So it was widely available throughout the culture. And the, the dominant culture, the conservative culture, uh, became very frightened. Because here was a substance that young people were taking, and it, it not only made them disrespectful of their elders, it made them not think that, um, say that war was a good thing. They didn't like war. They felt that harming the, the, the planet was not a good thing, so they began the ecology movement. They felt that injustice to women was a bad idea, and they started the feminist movement. So the early psychedelic people made a lot of um, social and economic upset, and that was the main reason, uh, so I understand, that these drugs were made illegal. One thing I always thought was interesting is that... Uh, um the perspective of a hippie type is usually like some lazy, dirty person. But when you look at 
actual hippies from those days, they have usually become very productive or entrepreneurs or, you know, uh, done things. It's, it's the opposite of this this image. Well, the, the right the image was that they were um, they were not productive members of society. The truth was they became entrepreneurs and artists. Um, I was just reading a, a story. A friend of mine is writing a memoir, and he recalls in high school, one of his friends started using drugs, and and my friend was thought this was awful, and that his friend became strange and difficult and and it was all terrible and they met um some years later and the the dropped out hippie high school student was now a um international lawyer and working for a major international bank so he was not only productive but he was um part of the very establishment that was so afraid of him, and so there's there are many stories that that people, of course, who did things when they were younger, learned from them, and made healthy, productive lives. And I'm sure, like in the general population, a number of people also uh, had difficulties in their lives and so forth. I find that psychedelics has helped me to perform well in what you call the rat race in the sense that it doesn't stress me out as much anymore and I don't have to take it that seriously. I can just do it and it doesn't really uh, drain me of energy as it did before psychedelics when I took it more seriously. Yeah, well, what, what I think happens, and, and you're a wonderful model, is you have a larger view that the world will go on without you and that your own individual personality um, is not so exciting that you need to worry about it so much. And that when you're helping other people, that you can see in each of them a kind of core of goodness. And that is, for me, what, what helps enormously, um, particularly when, for instance, I'm not very happy um, with the current president of the United States and a lot of the people around him. So I have to remember that they too have the same, um, they're part of the same species and that we are, um, we're all doing the best we can. So I, I understand very much that it's, it's easier after psychedelics to be in a somewhat difficult and often sad world. I recently heard, which I liked, you mentioned uh, Richard Alpert Ramdas, that he actually has on his puja table, like a table where he, you know, things he prays to, he has a picture of of, of uh, the current president, Donald Trump, because he wants to, you know, pray love to everyone, even him. Yeah. I mean, the, the problem is when you start deciding who you like and who you don't like, what you find out is that your anger and your upset makes you less effective and really doesn't do much to harm them. So my job is to make the world a, a better place in whatever way I can. And I figure that everyone else is doing as much as they can too. And we have different ideas about what's a better world. Um, 
and my I think mine are better than the ones I'm against. When I was younger and I heard about uh, this teaching of Jesus where he says, you know, love your enemies, I thought, oh, that's, I mean, philosophically that's uh, a good idea and it uh, doesn't seem that difficult, but as more, as I've been working with psychedelics and really been thinking about this, I'm, I've come to realize that to to adopt such qualities requires, you know, you have to be quite a powerful soul. I mean, it is, uh, it's, it requires more of you to love everybody right. than it does to hate everybody, which is very, it's the easiest thing to do, actually. <laughs> well, I think someone recently was pointing out to me that the most radical part of Christianity is love your enemies. Because it's very easy to say, you're my enemy. It's all right. I can hate you. And what Jesus was not saying, that your enemies should be allowed to do everything they like so that you want someone not to do terrible things. But that doesn't mean that hating them is a good method. And what we've found is that when you hate someone, it harms you. And that's terribly obvious when you're on a psychedelic. Because people on a higher dose, not a microdose, when they will think about people they hate, and they will forgive them. And um, I'm friends with a, a wonderful artist um, in the Netherlands. And she wrote me recently that she had taken a, a psychedelic at a high dose and that she realized that people who had been truly harmful to her were talking childhood abuse, that she could understand and she could forgive them. She didn't forgive them for doing it, but she understood that they were, they were not evil, they were sick. And she found in forgiving them, she just felt an enormous release of healthy energy for herself. What do you think, or why do you think there is psychedelic substances in it? I mean, nothing in nature is by accident. Have you ever thought about why it's there? Is it for our use, or, or, or is it just a coincidence that we can use it and it has these effects, or why do you think it's there? Well, it is a wonderful question, and I certainly have asked it myself. You know, why is a substance, so let's say, let's take peyote, which is a little tiny cactus, very unattractive, and if you taste it, it has one of the worst tastes in the world. So nature is saying, don't make a mistake in tasting this unless for some reason you're very serious. And when you ask the indigenous people, how did you find peyote or ayahuasca? And they say the plants told them that this was something good for them and they should do it. Now, given that the plants are much older than humanity um, and that the plants are protective of themselves and that people who take psychedelics become more interested in saving the natural world, it may be that these substances are created in part so that the plants um, can protect us all. 
Now that's that's wildly speculative, um, but that's what the plants say. I always like this theory that Terence McKenna said that he thought that maybe nature invented humanity to help the plants move around. Well, that that always I love that the fact that in the in the battle between the grass and the trees that humanity cuts down trees and plants grasses. And the the most um, the plant that has moved into more places in the world than probably any other plant, solely because of human beings, is marijuana. Is it possible to microdose cannabis? I mean, if you eat a lot of cannabis, you can have a very psychedelic experience. Um, there, there are some uh, some articles about microdosing cannabis, and what they say is it's just a nice thing to take like one puff or a little hit um, as you go about your day so you're not, again, trying to get high or into an altered state. Um, I don't have personal experience, but the people who do say it's a nice thing to do. And there's also a whole new group who are saying that, that cannabis used carefully can be as spiritual and as intense as the better known psychedelics. And there's a new book on cannabis and spirituality um, with a lot of people who I respect pointing out that this is a, a use that we've, we've neglected, that, we're all, that the world is just using it socially as if it's safer, you know, a safe version of alcohol, but it actually can be used um, ritually and spiritually as well. Do you think the recent development, I mean, after all, uh, the drug policy of the United States sets the policy for most countries. And do you think that now when it's more legal in, in the United States, that that will eventually be a step towards making psychedelics more acceptable? Well, that's happening because there there now is research in the United States and it's all positive. There's research in England considerable amount in England. Um, there's, um, I'm in, I'm looking of course at microdosing research and there is a study in Norway and a study in Australia. Um, there's a very complicated study that's being worked on in Spain. So the world is, is recognizing that these substances, um, were made illegal in an earlier era, and not for scientific reasons. So now there is good science coming out, and I keep reading uh, a lot of articles that say if psychedelics can help depression, and the research seems to say so, um, then perhaps this is the next um, the next round of effective psychiatric drugs to help people. So there, there's almost no articles I can find which... Say no, 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 no. These are terrible drugs, and they'll hurt you, and you should stop. They're all um, amazing amount of positive articles. If you Google psychedelics dash practically uh, clinical or depression, um, you will be overwhelmed with how many references you find. So, what's your own view of of the spiritual world? Do you? Uh... Do you have a sort of uh, idea of of a god or an afterlife or something like that? Well, 
what I'm aware of is that the there seems to be a lot more intelligence than human beings have. And to say that it's a god, which makes it very Western, or that it's a divine force, or it's the will of heaven being China, um, or it's um, the Atman and the Brahman within all humans from Hinduism. We've all explored these same places that the great religions talk about. And what we come away with is knowing that um, there is more, and it seems to be positive or kind or beneficent, um, and it certainly doesn't look like um, any of the specific religions. It's a little bit, you know, I look at the, the different religions as all having value, uh, but it's, it's, for me, it's like flavors of ice cream. And to think that, that chocolate and vanilla would argue with each other about their value is ridiculous when it is clear from a, from a you know, higher position that they're both just ice cream. They're both varieties of the same thing. So, um, so I don't follow any particular um, sect or faith. Um, I taught. Uh, Sufism, which is the esoteric side of Islam, um, I taught a course using their their materials, their stories, and their practices um, in a graduate psychology program um, for many years. And one of the things that is very clear, and there's a, a line from the, the 12th century poet Rumi, is there are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm also very interested in Sufism, and my favorite uh, quote by Rumi is this one where he goes that um, uh, the beloved, or which is God, I guess, in his terms, uh, um, the beloved drowns in his own in his own being, and this world is drenched in that drowning. <laughs> that's beautiful. Absolutely. The beloved is everywhere. And I, I, I used to give my students a little quick exercise, which is, what is not God? And any answer, of course, was wrong. Which is, there is something in everything. And, and the more, when you use psychedelics, this becomes fairly obvious. That everything has its own essential being or... Um, value or, or kind of aura of, of intelligence and life. And that includes um, stones and mountains and oceans, as well as um, people and your, and, your, and your own little pet dog. I, I discovered Sufism uh, actually after using psychedelics because what I was doing, I was traveling in the Middle East and I was visiting all these beautiful mosques And when I was in the mosques, uh, I was so amazed to see that when I, when you know when you're on the floor looking up, the yep. the patterns and the the way the 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 way it's been painted is so extremely psychedelic, and and I recognized a lot of what I had seen, and that's exactly. that's why I started to look into Islam, and that's how I discovered Sufism, because Sufism oh, it makes more sense 
well, it, it, not, you can't have Islam without Sufism, actually, from my understanding. But the Sufism is the one that where I found the most things that resonated with me. Well, the, the Sufi teacher I, I worked with briefly, uh, who ran the Hilvadi Jurai order in Istanbul, um, he quotes from the sayings of Muhammad, um, or from his own source, that um, Islam is the lamp and that Sufism is the flame. And so when you're in that mosque and you look at the interweaving of, of lines and shapes in the architecture and your mind goes to a place you're familiar with, with psychedelics, um, it is not surprising. And there's some wonderful books called Sacred Geometry that look exactly at the way um, the architects and artists in Islam have used geometric shapes to, to open consciousness. I also have this theory that, you know, this famous thing about you're not allowed to draw uh, God in, in Islam. And I'm right. thinking maybe that comes from the, th- the fact that you can't and it's been uh, <laughs> diluted over time. And, and the only way you can draw it is by using uh, sacred geometry. Actually, I think that's a wonderful insight. <laughs> right. The reason you can't draw the image of God is because you can't. And in the West, they say, well, you can't, but you could draw something really nice. <laughs> and the other difference, we have to remember that in Islam, one of the one of the basic tenets is you have to be literate enough to read the Quran. And in Christianity, until very recently, a few hundred years, most people who were Christians were not literate, and the only way they were uh, could remember the stories um, was to look on the on the walls of the cathedral or the church and look at the imagery. So it's simply a very different tradition. Uh, one of how do you deal with illiterates, and the other is how do you make a culture based on literacy. Yeah, that's true. I also always imagine that the story goes that Muhammad went into a cave and met an angel, and I always think that's the perfect place to go and take psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> well, the wonderful story with, with Muhammad is that he was supposed to be, actually that he was illiterate, and the the angel would come to him and tell him, and then he would remember and tell someone who would write it down. But indeed, he would go into the cave and meditate, and that uh, that still seems to be a good method. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm I'm like you also. I, I uh, uh, after psychedelics, I actually rediscovered all religions, and 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 reading them now. Uh, because you have to read them and kind of ignore the political parts of it because it's been written down with politics in mind and you have to look at the core essence of, of all the religions. That's where you find yeah. the the truth. Yeah, well, there's a, a realization that, that there's a truth and then after a while there are followers who understand most of the truth and then eventually there are people who run the organization, and we call them bureaucrats. Um, I like the French term, which is petit fonctionnaires, which are people who sit on a little cushion and follow the rules. 
And those people are necessary, but they have very little idea of what the original truth was. And so they're the ones who, who end up writing the rules. So the rules are very far from the original vision. And then people will have the original vision again in the later era, and, and so it goes. My argument for people who always claim that their religion is the correct one is that I always say, well, we all know when each religion began, when it was written down, and everybody agrees that God must have existed before that time, which means that God was before any religion was written down. Oh, that's lovely. And and the other thing is the writing down, we all know when we've had a, you know, have a moving experience, go see a beautiful sunset or walk on a glacier and then write it down and then say to someone here, read it. And they will say, that's really beautiful. Or I moved or what a good writer you are, or you're not a good writer, but none of them will say, ah, I feel I'm standing on the glacier too. Ah, I feel the same sunset. So we all know that writing is useful, but it's not, it, it isn't pure transmission. And what I, I love about Buddhism, and most people don't know, that nothing was written down for the first 500 years. Because people would memorize these texts and pass them on. And only when Buddhism got into a little bit of trouble did people feel it was necessary to start writing these texts down in case they not be remembered. So my guess is over 500 years that the the memorization was not perfect. Do you have any um, special knowledge or interaction with any indigenous cultures in the world? Well, it's um, it's hard to live in the United States and not be at least aware of the indigenous cultures that you have destroyed um, to to set up your towns. And I have spent time um, in New Mexico um, with with indigenous groups and have some indigenous friends. Um, I have not had psychedelics in an indigenous setting. Um, partly because of lack of opportunity, but partly because um, I'm not a member of any, you know, I'm a member of my group, and the rituals need to come out of my own culture. And for me to, say, go to the Amazon and sit with a Shibibo in a traditional ceremony is very healthy and good, but I also know that uh, I am still an outsider, a visitor, maybe a guest, maybe a beloved guest, but I'm still um, only getting a part of what is there um, because I'm not part of the culture. But for the, the natives in the United States, uh, do you have it? Is the, all the knowledge lost or is the oral tradition going? Well, um, there's a lot more of the knowledge that still is known but not shared with white people. Because the native, the native groups in the United States have learned that the white majority really doesn't know, doesn't understand it, and um, you, their need is to protect the knowledge um, because it is needed. 
since a lot of the Native American knowledge is how to live in harmony with the natural world, and that's where the United States is most um, deficient and in most desperate need. Is there any psychedelic uh, that's connected with the Native Americans? Well, yes. Uh, the peyote cactus is the core of uh, what's called the Native American church. And even though psychedelics are illegal in the United States, and there our laws say they have no use, uh, we have a what's called a religious exemption, where if you are a at least one quarter Native American, you may freely um, use peyote in your church rituals. So we have an, a a large ongoing um, Native American religion based entirely on the correct use of peyote. How would you say peyote differs from other psychedelics, or is it very similar? The peyote, uh, the major ingredient, or the major alkaloid, the major chemical in peyote is mescaline. And mescaline has the same effects as LSD. Now also, in the native, uh, Mexico has more psychedelics than any country in the world, and it also has several varieties of um, morning glory seeds that have in it what's called LSA, which is lysergic acid amide, which is like LSD, only not as strong. And so that is available, um, and one can literally buy morning glory seeds um, at, a, at a gardening store, uh, which have a psychedelic. And these, so there are other plant psychedelics available, but peyote is the one that's best known and, and used in a spiritual tradition. What would you say about this argument that it's just your own mind tricking yourself? I mean, when you are in the psych- a very strong psychedelic experience, you have no doubt. But when you're out of it, you can start to doubt. And if you know people who have not tried it could easily believe that it's your mind tricking yourself. But how have you come to terms with these ideas? Well, I think it's it's really the same question when people say, "How can you believe in your religion when my religion is better?" And I know my religion is better because I don't know anything about your religion. That becomes a very silly argument. So when someone says to me, how do you know that you're taking psychedelics and the changes you say you've made in your life are true? And I'd say, well, the only really test is if my life is working or not. And if it isn't working, then there's a good argument that you know my beliefs are poor. So if someone says to me, well, I have beliefs from my childhood, and it's that people whose skin is black are bad people. And I, I say, does that make your life work better? And that's really the question for me. And very often they say, well, no, actually, uh, hating people hasn't been very good for me. And I say, well, why don't you try a little... A little less hating and see if that works. So it's really it's a philosophical question that that is not of much interest. I think it's if you if if there were people who didn't have sex 
And if you think back to there was an age when we were younger, when some of us had had sex and some hadn't. And the ones who had not had sex said, well, how do you know it's so good? And the ones who had sex is, I really can't explain it to you. You'll have to have your own experience. So when people say, well, psychedelics aren't good for you, you should use meditation or drugs are bad, I said, that's fine for you. And it's been different for me. But how can you, I mean, like, it's amazing that, you know, science can break it down to a certain chemical, but uh, how can that chemical, is it like, it? Is it some sort of teleportation? How can it uh, change everything so much? Or is it just, even if it's, even if the effect of tricking yourself is good, is it still, is it real or not, you know? Well, the thing that's wonderful is, Science can only take us so far. And the scientists are saying, here is, a, here is what actually happens when you take a psychedelic or when you, um, you, know, when you eat an apple. And that's, that's a lot of fun. But it won't really change whether people eat apples or not, and it won't change much about psychedelics. And we know, we know much less than the neuroscientists would like us to believe because what they do is so exciting and beautiful and fun, um, but it hasn't really made any difference. You know, if you say to a neuroscientist, okay, now that we know so much more about the brain, what's different in the culture? What's different in international relations? What's different in child rearing, what's different in relationships? And they say, well, my work isn't about that. And so I've, I like that people do science, um, but I also like it when people say I'm studying uh, 12th century medieval French. I like that too. And the question for me, and it's, it's, it is a prejudice. My prejudice is I like to do things that might be useful. And I like science that has a practical um, application or value. And, and neuroscience will, um, but it is not much yet. So where do you think consciousness is outside of us or, or inside of us? Well, what I know is that Jim Fadiman, speaking, is a subset of the larger being that I'm part of. And that's one of my insights from psychedelics, that there is more to me than I am aware of. And that's actually quite relieving because it makes consciousness larger than personality, than identity, than, you know, than what I see when I look in the mirror. And there is considerable evidence that consciousness um, exists before birth and after death. Now, this is more from the Tibetan tradition who, who have done the research, um, where they point out that there is a field of consciousness and we are, we are in it. It's as if we're a flower in a very large field and consciousness is the field. So 
we come up, we rise, we look around, we uh, look at the sun, we get the rain, we make seeds, we go back into the earth, and we recycle. But the field, the field of consciousness, remains fairly stable. Have you written any books? <laughs> oh, I write books all the time. But the, the one that is more important at this point and seems to be helpful um, is a book called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And it's available only in English and Spanish. Um, but it has, it has within it um, the, the first chapter, the first uh, written article on microdosing, and it also has a couple of chapters on how what's the best way to use a high dose for the deepest and most powerful and most uh, wonderful experience. And I should mention that in my, in my own work, even in the 60s, um, when we asked, say, 100 of our, our subjects, then almost all of them said that the psychedelic experience they had had under, you know, with guidance and with care and with support, what I call therapeutically safe, was among the most important experiences of their lives. And so the book is an attempt to make sure that that knowledge of how to do things as well as we know how um, was not lost. That was my reason for, for doing it. That it continues, that people continue to buy it suggests that that's still useful for people is if you're going to do something that might be the most important experience of your life, it's a good idea to do it right. And people can get that book uh, online anywhere? or Yeah, that's, that's available anywhere. And I'm just finishing a book, which is on quite different, on healthy multiplicity, which is the realization that within you is more than one self, that you are actually... Uh, can change selves and do. Um, and you say things like, I don't know what got into me, or I don't know how I ever could have done that. And many other common expressions that say we have, there are more than one part of ourselves. And so I'm, I'm finishing a book with a friend about that and about how, how much, again, make, it makes your life much Saner, if you realize why you are inconsistent, and usually more important is why the people you care about and know are inconsistent. Because we, we like people to be consistent. We like to know how they're going to behave. And when they behave differently, we get angry at them. Except if you understand that they have simply shifted to a different part of their identity. So that's the that's the book I'm just finishing. It reminds me of of I always question myself, and I'm always thinking that in the last uh, ten years I've I've changed a lot thanks to my work with psychedelics. But I'm also thinking, well, if I if I could go back in time and not do psychedelics, would I have a ch would I have changed anyway due to age? The answer is, if simply aging made people better then politicians would be the best people. So I think that argument is very weak. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't change unless something happens to change us. Yeah, I know. It's just the devil's advocate in me, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
And and as you become older, you do become, well, most people become a little gentler, but some people become even meaner and more terrible, so who knows. Do you have a website? So if people want to see, read more about your work, and, and, and uh, is it that Michael Oh, if they, if they, I have a website with so much on it, um, jamesfadiman.com, and on it are a lot of speeches on a lot of different topics. Um, the one that, that I like the best because of the person I did it with is called Buddhism and the Psychedelics. And the Buddhist priest, uh, Kokyo, who I'm doing it with, is so clear and so beautiful <coughs> about the interaction of Buddhism and psychedelics. So that's that's kind of my favorite. And if people want to know more about microdosing, um, while we're still working on publishing any research, um, I did do a talk with my colleague, Sophia Korb, um, at MAPS, M-A-P-S, had a, a huge conference in 2017. And so that's the first time we've talked about the results of these, uh, these 1,800 people. So that's probably the, the most fun way um, if you want to learn more about my work. Why do you think Buddhism and psychedelics go so well together? Probably because Buddhism suggests that you have no self. You have that your personal identity is simply a patchwork of ideas and beliefs and experiences, but that deeper down there's no self. And psychedelic experience for many people makes them understand what I just said so that they they have perhaps a, a, an identity, but no, but their self is much more fluid or open. A lot of people after their first psychedelic experience are very surprised uh, when they find that they're back in the same body, in the same world that they left eight hours earlier because they have been into a much larger, freer view of consciousness. The other thing that, that, that Kokio and I talk about and simply is true, is that at least in the United States, is maybe 80% of the teachers of Buddhism, and there are many, uh, began because of their own psychedelic experience. So there's a very um, tight relationship in contemporary Buddhism, and there's another wonderful book called The Secret Drugs of Buddhism, which points out that in the the early centuries of Buddhism, one of the major branches had a major ritual, um, the kind of defining ritual within that, that Buddhist um, sect or division that was based on a psychedelic. So psychedelics are at the root of uh, the growth of Buddhism, and they're also very visible in contemporary Buddhism. Well, thank you a lot for taking the time to talk to me. It was very interesting. Well, Alex, you've been wonderful in being very gentle. Your, your, your audience should know that Alex is very gentle and very persistent and a great pleasure to talk with. Check out microdosingpsychedelics.com 
or jamesfadiman.com. And there are many ways to support this podcast. The easiest is to share it with friends in social media or writing a nice review on iTunes. But you can also become a patron and get access to a lot of additional material and also be able to listen to these episodes way before they are released. And I'll post all the relevant links to all of that in the program notes on naturalbornalchemist.com. To gracefully close this episode, we are going to use the track Insomnia by Mac Mangos from the album Insomnia. And we talked a bit about the Sufi poet Rumi in this episode. And just so you know, as fate would have it, that is who the next episode is going to be about. Freedom is in the mind. <laughs>